Arzy, this is going to be a quick little intro because, quite frankly, I'm done talking about when the league is going to start. Okay. First I get of one all, more person asking me, when's it going to start? I don't know. You I don't and know. I do not know the meaning of quick intro, Fair. but I like where you're going with this. And I'm with you on this entire conversation that just keeps going on and on and on. You know how long this conversation's been going on? I'm trying to, what's his handle on Twitter? Anyway, his name's Pete. I'm pretty sure he's from Owen Sound. We made a bet for a butter tart or a half dozen butter tarts. I can't remember how many. Of course, I'm making bets on butter tarts. But I can't remember which side I picked. I think I picked the side of there will not be an OHL season. I, I don't know. I'm still convinced there's going to be. I just don't know when the hell it's going to start. That's right. I wanted to get in on that. But I, he tagged me, said, what about you? And I didn't. at that point, I was like, I don't know where I land, but I was going to bet. One sound fries. That's uh, what I want. I don't want butter tart. What's the bet though? The, which, which side? Which side am I on? Do you remember? If there's going to be a season. Oh, I, I well, no, I'd have to go back. Yeah, I don't even know what side I picked. I, Here's what my side I'm on. Okay, there is going to be a season. Forget when, because it doesn't matter when, as long as there is a season. Fans are going to watch slash listen in whatever way the OHL and the provincial government deems necessary. And even more so, I'm sorry to every one of our listeners that isn't a member of one of the 20 teams in the Ontario Hockey League, but the season isn't for you. Fans aren't in attendance. The season is for the kids that are in this league. And the season is for the future, whether it be no the future of hockey of these kids, because the education, who knows what's going on with the education packages, but the government's paying for it. Um, <laughs> what? it's true I, I get it listen it's true but it's all about the hockey the, it's about the kids the scouts and the teams because the season really isn't about the fans and that sucks to say and it isn't about you and i who are just dying to get back and watching hockey and calling a game together but it's not about us so whenever it's going to start it's going to start we'll all watch because we'll be like oh my gosh it's back way to go you know simon motu what a pass far be it from it. me far be it from me to disagree with you, Popper, but I'm about to disagree with at least part of what you just Weird. said. One thing you said, though, fans of this podcast, if you're a listener and you want to get in touch, you want to suggest a name for OHL stories like uh, Lowell did, right? And we're working mm-hmm. on it. We, all, we almost got McCrory lined up, I think. Yeah, we got it. We got it's in the works. Okay. It's so in the works. We'll go back 40 years to the yep. Oshawa Generals of the mid 80s. Yeah, we will. Farwell and Pope at gmail.com. Or on Twitter, at underscore Chris Pope. I'm at Farwell underscore OHL. Those are the ways to get in touch. Tell us what you think. Leave a rating when you subscribe or go on the podcast page, whatever. Give us your feedback. We're happy to hear it. So here's Please do where, like and subscribe if you listen. It makes a big difference to that us. That would be awesome. Absolutely. Here's where I'm going to disagree with you, Chris. I Look, we are fans of junior hockey, and we know that the fans are pretty hardcore. They are the fans. But here's what I'm hearing at this point, that the Ontario government is pretty much driving the bus on this. So when sports and culture and tourism minister Lisa McLeod says, we expect to be able to announce something by the beginning of April, 
it's not going to mean the beginning of April is go time. So if that's when something gets announced, add two more weeks to bring players back from wherever they are or into Canada to go to a bubble, add two weeks for the quarantine time. And all of a sudden you're mid April. And as much as I love this game and as much as the hardcore fans love this game and some of those hardcore fans will be a part of the experience in some way as best they can, because these games will be broadcast. I promise you that there is not a soul that is going to be following this game in July. I'm sorry. And if you go 24 games from mid April, you're playing until about mid June. And then you're trying to do a little playoff and the timing, as much as this season or this league is not for the fans, it's for the development and getting players ready for the next level. Something's got to time out with that NHL draft in July. So timing is absolutely essential at this point. And I don't think the fan base is going to follow much in the way of the broadcast says the weather gets nicer and nicer and we want to get the hell out of our houses. I could not disagree with you more. <laughs> okay. The well, fans look- of this league have shown me over the years that they are as passionate as passionate can as passionate as passionate as they can be easy for me to say um, Dave Mello, the flag man in Kitchener, he will be watching or listening to every single Rangers game puck drop to final whistle. There are fans like that in this league. There is zero doubt in my mind that fans will be able to watch and listen and will show up in droves for their respective teams. The gentleman whose name I still don't know, who has came up to our booth in London every single time we've been there wearing a green mohawk, is going to watch or listen to every single London Knights game from opening puck drop and pregame show with Mike Stubbs and Jim Van Horn to the final whistle. It is going to happen. Fans in this league are crazy. And you know what? I love it. I Listen, I'm with you, and those fans absolutely will. But if you're thinking... I'll tell you what, even the the 7,000 that we're lucky enough to see 34 times a year at home games in Kitchener, I think you'd be hard-pressed to get 7,000 people to really be paying attention in June, Popper. That's what you have to think about. But here's the thing. It doesn't matter. Yes, I get it. It doesn't well, matter. Okay. Here's another way it might not we're matter. We're healthy, and it doesn't matter. There's here, hockey on. If you want to watch it, watch it. If not, go outside. Play in right. the rain. But, you know, when when the NHL, remember, the NHL is in season two of the pandemic as, <laughs> as the Ontario Hockey League sits back and watches every other hockey league play hockey. But when the NHL came on in the summer of 2020, I was like, I'm ready for this. Like, I can't watch any more Netflix. I can only watch Forrest Gump and the Shawshank Redemption so many times. Like, I need something fresh. That's and- a lie. But carry on. Well, fair, especially on Shawshank. But you anyway, those two of all <laughs> well, movies, Forrest Gump and Shawshank. Why not? They're on all the time, and I'm watching there, them all the there time. There should be a channel that just replays Shawshank. No, it's just you, you, always on. Well, there is. It's called AMC, which is oh, where I always see it. Phenomenal. You know what? There should really be a channel for. And if there isn't one, or there is, and I'm missing it, where is the classic tennis channel? Because in my idle flipping of. TV channels. I came across Borg versus McEnroe and McEnroe was played by Shia LaBeouf. So just forget it. But I couldn't stop watching because I was a big Borg guy back in the day. And I'm like, if you actually put these matches on television, are you kidding me? Why is there not a Wimbledon channel or a a tennis channel? Why is there Real, real quick? Yeah. Speaking of channels, if you haven't checked our YouTube page, OHL stories on YouTube, check out our channel, give us a like, maybe a follow or whatever's on there. Um, 
I would, if there is an, a tennis channel, I please, somebody tell me that right? there's a way I could go back and watch like Federer, Nadal, Wimbledon, just on repeat and Dude. sit there and let my eyes bleed from not sleeping while I continue to watch this. And my girlfriend leave me from not paying any attention to her or the dog and just be locked in on Nadal, Federer shaking just constantly. Borg, McEnroe. <laughs> Connors, Courier, Sampras, Navratilova, Celis, Chrissy Everett. Like, how many do you want to watch? Anyway, this all started with watching hockey in the summer of 2020. As we approach the summer of 2021, and Chris thinks you're going to watch OHL games, which you're not. I love you, but you're not. I was all in. I'm like, give me real life. Give me unscripted drama. Let's go. And as soon as the Leafs were out, I'm like, it's August. What am I doing here in front of my TV? I'm getting outside. Picture this. Picture this. There's no concerts to go to. You can't have big gatherings with all your friends and big parties. You're outside. You're walking the dog. You cut the grass in the afternoon. You go inside. You do the Chris Pope special, which is you watch the first three innings of the Jays game. You fall asleep for three. You wake up for seven, eight, nine. You have yourself a pop. You go outside. You start barbecuing. The day is good. You get a couple beers and you're like, it's 7 o'clock. There's hockey on. Lay back outside. Maybe maybe you move your TV outside. You throw on 570 News and listen to us two idiots serenade you for Francesco Pinelli's 23rd goal. Like, what a day to be alive. Tell me. Tell me, Michael. That does not sound like perfect in June. You paint a good picture. And what an interesting name you just dropped on this podcast, because I happen to know, and I'm not saying it's just, it's just coincidental because we know that Francesco Pinelli is what you would call an A prospect on the, uh, okay. So you and I talked about this last week. And if you're, if you're an A prospect, if you're a, if you're a first rounder, are you going to play a 24 game bastardized Ontario hockey league season? Or are you going to go and play u18s in texas and i think we landed on you're playing the ohl season ohl season yes i happen to know of an a prospect but it's not playing the ohl season he is choosing and is in the process already of making his way to texas well that's if there is an ohl season because as we just talked about the the ontario government is in charge of this and i i'm just gonna go on a bit of a like just give me 10 seconds this is the same government that has buried restaurants and and bars for a while. And then within 12 hours says, Oh, I guess you could have 50% people in there. I know you had to lay off all your staff and you have no waitresses and no bartenders and you have nothing in place to keep everyone safe. But 12 hours from now, 50% up to 50 people. Sure. This is the same government that's trying to plan our OHL season. And you wonder why here at eight 30 on March 23rd, we are still without a season. Hmm. Those are the same 50 people that'll be going to their same favorite watering hole in late June, early July, instead of watching Ontario Hockey League games. I'm just, I love the league. I love the league. We'll see in September. That's all. Uh, oh, speaking, be a season. speaking, yes, there will. But it's, it's just, I don't know how it's going to matter a whole lot. Uh, speaking of the league, a couple of former OHLers got into it in the penalty box during a recent NHL game. And you tweeted this out, Popey. Uh, so Nathan, Nathan Bastian. A local boy, good old Kitchener kid, mm-hmm. former Mississauga Steelhead, chirping of all others, Jeff Skinner of the Buffalo Sabres, who is not a Kitchener kid, but played for the Kitchener Rangers. 
my biggest takeaway from this one, I was laughing because Bastion was 12 when Skinner was playing in his final season here in Kitchener. So Bastion was probably, if not guaranteed at at least a couple games cheering on number 53 in Rangers blue. But my favorite part that yes, he's chirping them, but Bastion looks older than Skinner. Yeah. Figure that out. <laughs> he's, so he's, he's telling Jeff Skinner, he's the most overpaid player in yeah. the national hockey league. And look, I'm going to, I'm going to, Project my bias be. here uh, by the stats right now, maybe, but this is, I'm, I'm not that Jeff Skinner needs me to defend him. Okay. But I'm going to, I'm going to project my bias here. I'm going to be that Homer, but I'm going to say something that I've said many a time before, because it, it hurts me to see Skinner struggle like this because Chris, I have never before in, and I, I listen, Don Cameron called 4 million times more games than me. And, and there are, but in my time, Okay, in the years that I have covered this game, and I've seen some, I've seen some really good players. I've seen like the Corey Perrys, the Mitch Marners, the uh, the Marty St. Pierre's, the Dan Girardis. I mean, we can go on and on a bunch bunch of guys. The the, the Mike McDavid. Richards, the Connor McDavid was also there. Yeah, uh, Aaron Ekblad, Jeff Skinner was a guy. Taylor Hall, because it makes me think of that year where Windsor and Kitchener went to seven games in the Western Conference Final. Jeff Skinner was. The guy, I've, I've never seen anyone as determined to score goals as Jeff Skinner. Never. The work ethic, the, the desire for that puck, when Jeff Skinner was on the ice and the puck wasn't on somebody else's stick, he was going to get the puck. He scored from all kinds of places, often two or three feet from the net because the puck was there. And he went to get the puck and then he put the puck in behind the goalie. In his 50-goal season with the Kitchener Rangers in 2009-10, he scored another 20 goals in 20 playoff games. Jeff Skinner that year scored 70 goals in 84 hockey games. Jeff Skinner will be just fine. And Nathan Bastian may eat those words. That's all. That's all. Here's my take. Okay. He's got 72 million reasons to not give a crap. Wow. But it doesn't make, it doesn't matter. He didn't have any millions. At the end of the day, he's played in the show. He won rookie of the year, 72 sheets. (laughs) You can say whatever you want to me. I don't care. You're overpaid. Yeah, but it's 72 mil in the bank. My kids, 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 kids are going to be fine. Like it doesn't matter. And that's just me thinking it's hilarious because Skinner is like Skinner's a super nice kid. At least he wasn't Kitchener. He just donated money to the Kitchener food bank during all this. Yeah. 53,000 when he was here. Yeah. Like, what can you say about the guy, you know, and, and Bastion was a good kid when I got to talk to him. I just think 72 mil, who cares? <laughs> say whatever you want to me. Yeah, I don't care. That's and, one of the, sorry, just real quick. He's in Buffalo. That's where things go to die. I'm sorry, Jay McKee. Taylor Hall's one of the best players in the National Hockey League just a few years ago, won the Hart Trophy for literally carrying his entire team on his back. And then he goes to Buffalo and he's not doing much. Jack Eichel was talked about of being literally toe-in-toe with Connor McDavid. And then he's in Buffalo and nothing. Get out of there. The Pagulas don't know what they're doing. A cross sport. Sorry. Anyway. Yeah, well, and this is why I think once Jeff Skinner gets that change of scenery, things will be fine. Because y- your argument, and yeah, okay, you know, it's like the uh, was it Patrick Wall that said, "I can't hear you. I've got my Stanley Cup rings Two in my Stanley ears." Cup yeah, fi- or, yeah rings that's good. Rings. But the but the money argument, see that that's a way better line. Like you don't you don't say to Nathan Bastian, 
I don't care because I've got 72 million. That's the greatest fallacy. And it's the fallacy that we all use when we don't have that kind of money. Right. So yeah, we just say, I oh, think. yeah, yeah. But but the point is these players, like, yes, of course, they're they're thrilled to have the money, but they're not they're not in the league and, and suiting up every night to not win. You don't get to this level without being ultra competitive. So it's killing Jeff Skinner. He's not sitting back 100%. saying, I don't care if I have nine goals because I got 72 million in the bank. He's like, damn it, give me a better situation so I can go score 50 goals again. That's what he wants. Rude. Does he have nine? I, I didn't look at his I, I don't right think now, he does. But, yeah. but anyway, I'm, I'm right with you. Um, I get it. And I'm sure Jeff Skinner is very upset about how his production is looking when you're looking at an eight-year contract signed just two years ago for, again, 72 mil. I just think it's hilarious that you're making, like you're chirping somebody who makes 72 mil. It's like, well, yeah, yeah, I'm overpaid. Yes, I am. There's thousands of people in the world that are overpaid for what they do. But 72 mil in the bank account is going to make me pretty happy when I go home and think about the comment you said that I was overpaid. (laughs) You know who's not overpaid? You and me. You and me. Three goals. This is bad. He's got three three goals in twenty seven games and one assist. <sighs> yeah, that is really really not. Good. That's what that's <laughs> one game for him in Kitchener. Three goals, one assist. That's just a Friday night at the odd. Yeah, that's all that is. Anyway, uh, our our guest this week is an absolute beauty. The stories that you are <laughs> you're about to hear, they don't always follow a natural path, but they are a fun path from start of story to end of story you will absolutely be entertained i don't know where you found this guy popper but he is a gem listen when i'll go back a little bit sometimes this hockey world brings people together and if i seem a little amped up it's because we just got finished doing another podcast that will air next week but i felt like i had to be on my best behavior you know and i don't I know it why was, it was one of our like one of our top notch podcasts, like the, the, the guest was very eloquent, had some great it was. stories. I know. I just felt like our I had to my best rump- behavior. I'm, I'm with you. Sit yeah. on my hands, respect. And I asked every question. I'm like, is he judging my questions? Did I say this? And then I got the color of the jacket wrong. And that really bothered me. And then it was in my head and I'm yeah. Anyway. So go rewind That's next a, week's podcast. Yeah. Rewind yeah. a couple of years. Um, we're, I'm living in Palmerston and I'm trying to find a summer job. And I have over on my neighbor's computer because their Wi-Fi was better and dial up. That's how long ago it was. Frickin' Palmerston. I'll tell and I you. come I come home and I go, mom, dad, I think I'm going to British Columbia. And they were like, what were you smoking over there? And it wasn't legal then. So that was an issue. Um, and I go, no, I think I'm going. I applied for a job in Penticton, British Columbia. Never heard of it. My mom said, isn't that person, isn't Penticton where that pig farmer? I said, no, that's Robert Picton. This is a town. (laughs) (laughs) This is a true story. (laughs) It's a town, Penticton, just south of Kelowna. I'm going to go out there. Oh my gosh. And I'm going to go out there and work at a hockey school. And they were like, you're only going because your friend's going. I said, well, actually we applied for it together and we both got accepted. So now we're going to go. So we go out there and after some, adventures that I could do a whole podcast on and one that we probably couldn't air. Um, I met a group of friends that I am still friends with today, still extremely close and some of the best guys that I've ever met. It was just still to this day, 35 years. It is the summer of my life and I will never forget it. Are these the uh, stray cats by chance? Nope. Those are just my childhood buddies. Shout out stray cats. Um, 
It was great. We worked 12 hours on 12 hours off as hockey counselors for kids that would do whose parents paid like a lot of money to send them to this uh, hockey school. They paid and a lot of money and they got you as one of their counselors. I'd ask for my money back too, especially <laughs> after hearing this story. So we would work noon till noon. So you get on, you get off at noon and you're in this beautiful city, the sun shining, they call it the desert of Canada. And all of our food is paid for room and board. We're all there. So what do you do at noon when you're a 20 year old? Well, you go to the beer store and with all your buddies, and then you float down the river that flows through the entire city. So you Amazing. rent it, you rent an inner tube and you flow down. Mm-hmm. By the time you get to the end of the river, three hours later, sun beating on you, a couple of Molson Canadians, you're ready to tackle the world. We then hit the bowling alley classic and then catch free dinner at the hockey school and then go out downtown. Are you so Chris Pope or the big Lebowski? I can't it was keep it. Unbelievable. Straight. This was every single day. I'm not kidding. So, Anyway, one of those guys sends me a text. We hook up back and forth texting, you know, FaceTime here and there from time to time. Haven't seen him in a, in a while. And he goes, Popper, if you ever need someone for your podcast, first of all, I'm like, you've listened to the podcast. And he goes, I got a guy. He's my dad's friend. He won a Memorial Cup with Cornwall, beat the Rangers, played with Doug Gilmore. And I'm like, what? And wait, don't forget who else he played with, please. Dale Howarchuk. Thank you. Yes, of course. Scott <laughs> Arneal, Mark Crawford. Um, and I'm like, this guy sounds great. He goes, yeah, he only played two years, though. And then he got hurt, got a, a chance to go down and play pro in the U.S., but decided, nope, I'm going to fight for my country. I'm going to go to RMC. 30-plus years as a member of the Canadian Armed Forces after winning that Memorial Cup. On top of that, he is the first member of RMC's men's hockey program to get their number retired and just an all-around beauty. Ladies and gentlemen, Steve Malaski. Steve, I was going to put up a uh, picture of the 1981 Cornwall Royals behind me on my television screen here. I just didn't want to get too many Rangers fans disgruntled. I thought that already having you on and then seeing the photo back there of that Memorial cup championship might put them in a bad mood. <laughs> we appreciate uh, you coming on. Yeah. Well, it's a storied franchise in Kitchener. Uh, a lot of great teams and players over the years, but uh, like I'll say, I'll keep mine to that um, two year period in the early eighties. What a phenomenal team uh, Kitchener had and had a couple of, well, did win a Memorial cup and had a great run against us too. Uh, and again, there's so many similarities. I was, I was telling Mike uh, between our two teams, um, you know, Cornwall went to the Memorial Cup in 79-80 season, a bit of an underdog. Um, they upset uh, a highly talented Sherbrooke Beaver team uh, to get there. Similar to your 80-81 um, Kitchener team, uh, we fully expected uh, from the, that year, looking at the queue, the team to beat was the Sioux Greyhounds. Just a phenomenal team. Uh, had a great season, but... Uh, you know, talk about, uh, you know, getting lightning in the bottle for Kitchener going through the playoffs to upset that Sioux Great Hound team. And coming into the Memorial Cup as a bit of an underdog. Uh, in those days, there was only three teams. There was no host team. So it was the uh, Victoria Cougars from the Western League, uh, Cornwall Royals from the Quebec, and a young, upstarting, uh, promising Kitchener Rangers team. 
I want to get to those stories in Cornwall yeah. for sure. And that journey okay. to the Memorial cup. And yeah. as I've already mentioned to you, Steve, I'm, I'm on a mission to get Cornwall back into the Ontario hockey league at some point. I think it'd be a great market, but that's a story perhaps for another day before we talk about those couple of years in the, in the Q and the O with, with Cornwall. Uh, I want to take it back to your, your minor hockey days. And it all started for you in another city that doesn't have an OHL franchise anymore as well, which is Belleville. And, you know, that is a, that is a rabid hockey community with a, with a Crawford family. That is the stuff of royalty when it comes to hockey, but take us back to the days in Belleville and your formative years getting into this game. Well, there's earlier, there's a few hockey families, uh, the Mahar family, of course, Ricky Mahar going to go on to be the captain for the St. Louis Blues. The Crawford family, uh, special, special feelings for Bellevillians about that. We, we call them the first family of hockey. Uh, that family, uh, Floyd, played uh, for the 58-59 Belleville McFarlands, which was the Allen Cup then, the Senior Cup. That family alone, uh, through the father and the boys, I think have won every single cup there is to win in hockey, going from junior through pro. They won Memorial Cups, uh, the Calder Cups in the AHL, Stanley Cups in the NHL, the Allen Cup, uh, provincial titles. Uh, I guess the only thing missing was a gold medal in Nagano in, in 98. But other than that, uh, that family has uh, represented Belleville uh, in the finest traditions of hockey. You won a Memorial Cup in Belleville, no? No. Sorry, no. sorry, not a Memorial. Sorry, not a Memorial Cup. A Sutherland Cup. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah we did. Yeah. yeah, I was. Uh, so I was in. So Floyd was my coach in midget. Uh, my first year in midget, I played second year, and then I played for the uh, the Trenton Bobcats, where, where we used to be the Belleville Bobcats. But then when the Belleville Bulls came in, they were a tier two um, uh, team, and then Trenton took the junior B team, and we won the Sutherland Cup. Uh, in 1979-80, and I got drafted from that team to, to Cornwall. So there's uh, I, I look at now into the introduction of both Belleville and Cornwall now uh, dysfunctional or sorry defunct out of the OHL. I'm kind of a curse, maybe. <laughs> 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 you know, the two teams or cities that are most precious to my heart were uh, you know no longer part of the OHL. So that's too bad. But uh, I hope I hope that both teams can get back in some way somehow if there is ever a league expansion again. Growing up in, sorry, Mike, growing up in Belleville, though, you, you had a bit of a team in, in your household, I think, with 11 <laughs> kids. Yeah. What was that? And only, I read, oh, there was only one bathroom. What was that like, Mo? Oh, you did, eh? All right. So, uh, yeah. So I, I grew up in a family of 13. Uh, my father was a World War II infantier. And then when he, after the war, he joined the Canadian National Railroad and became a, uh, an engineer. Um, so we have, I'm the 10th of 11 kids, uh, eight sisters and two brothers and so every kind of winter dad would not just build one but two rinks and uh, one would be for mostly out skating for the girls and then, then we lived on a corner lot so we got that little side yard and he always made a nice rink there and then when you talk about yeah we lived in a very small modest home so uh, you know being at the young getting to uh, the kitchen table on time for a meal or god forbid uh, if you could ever get into the bathroom by yourself for any moment of time was, was precious. <laughs> the, five, the five oldest were girls uh, going to a Catholic high school. So I remember as a boy getting up, trying to get into the bathroom and the girls were getting their uniforms, school uniforms on, getting their hair done. Just, just trying to get 13 people in through the morning, brushing your teeth and getting cleaned up for school was 
I don't know. It, it's, it was chaos then, but it was kind of normal. <laughs> so, yeah. Did those, did those outdoor rinks you had on the property in Belleville become gathering spots for the neighborhood? Yes, absolutely. Uh, we, we did that um, and all the neighborhood kids. So to me, um, I have two older brothers. One's eight years older, uh, Peter, and Joe is five years older. So most of the kids in the neighborhood were, you know, three, if not five or eight years older than me. And, you know, so my choices as a little kid was either sit on a snowbank and watch or get out there and play. And one thing about older brothers, they don't take it easy on younger brothers um, or the older kids. And by playing ice hockey on on a yard, nobody passes the puck. (laughs) It's a a three-foot circle. And if you don't get to learn how to steal the puck and hang on to the puck, you know, it's not much fun. So... You know, being always sort of looking up and trying to compete, trying to compete, trying to compete with um, older siblings and neighborhood kids. And then when it came time to play minor hockey against kids your own age at 8, 9, 10, 11, 12 years old, I had a quite a strong advantage over them because I've been playing at a higher level and, and with stronger kids and bigger kids and faster kids. And so, you know, early in the, a lot of times it wasn't uh, – kind of felt easier playing against kids my own age because every like you know that was only twice a week you know Saturday Sundays you, you played maybe a practice in there but, but I got to play on the ice every day with older kids like hours and hours at end so and in hindsight looking back it was it was just a lot of fun but a distinct advantage over kids my own age at an early age anyway. When you eventually went up to play junior B and you win that Sutherland Cup, yeah. Floyd Crawford, who you mentioned, was your coach. What was he like as a coach? Boy, Floyd was old school, uh, tenacious, prepared. Winning was everything. Um, trying to trying to find exploit the other team's weaknesses. Um, he had a way of talking to every player. Uh, he could talk to the team as well, the team, but then he would go have his little one-on-one chat with you and explain. We don't explain. He would ask you, what do you have to do for this team to win? What, you know, he'd give you an assignment or something special. And it wasn't always – and it was never like trying to outscore. It was doing the little things, blocking shots, winning face-offs, chipping the puck out. Um, he he kind of had an ethos. It wasn't – you know, he didn't really care about looking at the end of the game, at the score sheet, see how many – goals and assist guys got he just knew what it took to win and if he didn't do it like the next practices could be bag skates as we called them back in the day but he made sure you were prepared and he he knew you had your assignments to do and uh and for me i was um when we got to the sutherland cup final we were playing a windsor team and they they had a, a another player on the other team that was touted to go fifth or sixth overall um and uh, high draft, and I wasn't that high, but he, but he made an assignment. He goes, "That's your player right there. You shut him down, we win this championship series." And so uh, there I was to shut down the other team's best player. wasn't about trying to score goals. wasn't trying. He said, "Just wear this guy down over the series. If you do that, he says you'll get drafted, you'll get looked at." And uh, and that was so. He made it for me simple in a way. Still had to play a team game. But he, that was the way he was. And uh, he didn't want to let him down. Like he was, he, I never seen a man that uh, eat, slept, and breathed hockey like he did. He had three sons playing in the NHL. 
and some go off and play college and just an incredible guy. And unfortunately, uh, Floyd passed away a few years ago. I went to his funeral and uh, a lot of people from Belfort were there. So a bit of hockey royalty for Belfort people. How much did that experience through the Sutherland Cup and being coached by Floyd help you when you made the leap into the Ontario Hockey League with the Cornwall Royals? Uh, again, it was about being prepared. Um, when I went to Cornwall, I, I wasn't uh, all that – I got drafted there. Um, and that team had just won the Memorial Cup when they weren't supposed to. Uh, they won it the year um, – they beat Peterborough Peets in the final. Um, Regina Pats were there with the uh, – Doug Wickenheiser was the cat with playing on that team. And Cornwall was – you know, they, they got hammered by uh, Peter Brohl, one of the round robin games, and and, uh, and Regina beat them bad in one of the games. But they got in, and they beat um, Peter Brohl in overtime. Like, you know, anything can happen in a one-game showdown. So, but but that team, that upset Sherbrooke in the queue, and then upset um, Peter Brohl Peets, and then the Regina Pats to win the Memorial Cup. That team coming back to Cornwall knew it was good. Like, they weren't losing that many players. And that team... They knew they were going to be better than the year before. And uh, so going into that team, Mark Crawford was the captain. Mark was in his third year and being from the same hometown. And when I played, uh, when I played on that junior B team, going, sorry, going back in the Southern Cup, Louis Crawford was on the team too. And I'll, I'll get to Louis. Louis got drafted by Cornwall, but he ended up playing for your Kitchener Rangers. Good friend of mine, even to this day. And, uh, and so, um, uh, so with Louis um, and, and Mark were really tough competitors. So Mark was the captain, and he, hey Steve, he goes, what position you're playing for? He goes, I'm, I'm the centerman. He goes, no, not, not in this team, you're not. He says you won't make it. <laughs> he goes, tell him you're playing forward. And he goes, um, and he goes at center that time. We had Dale Howarchuk was our number one. Like he won Player of the Year that year, just incredible. Uh, Scott Arneal, who played about twelve or. 14 years. He's now, it was a head coach of the Columbus Blue Jackets, now assistant coach. And Dougie Gilmore were our top three centers that year. So Mark, was, you know, not, not bad. <laughs> and another great friend of mine. Um, and so, uh, because you're not going to make the team, you're trying to go play on the wing and grind it out. And so, you know, and then Mark was saying, like, uh, we, we got to, you know, so there wasn't that many positions opening. And uh, and went into camp very prepared. Uh, I was very good at track and field. And the very first day there, you get measured and weighed in and all that kind of stuff. And it was right into a fitness regime. Before we even got the ice, we had to go do a five-mile run or an eight-kilometer run, uh, a bunch of other strength and conditioning tests and strength. And I finished uh, first or second in all those events. So and that's something I needed to do to get their attention. And then Mark was like, okay, because um, – you need, we were doing two scrimmages a day, uh, like a two hours in the morning, then lunch, stretch, two hours in the afternoon. Um, there was no, there was a, wasn't any referees on the ice, but the coaching staff were up in the seats observing and scouting and taking notes. And normally, you know, some other volunteers would just drop the puck. So when there were scraps and things like that, they just let you go. And Mark was saying, like, you need to get in a scrap once a, once a scrimmage and, and, and score some goals. And at that time, um, all the returning players, the Cornwall Royals had already, the year before, uh, they still had like the Royals hats, the Royal gloves, and the Royal pants on. So you knew who they were. And he goes, don't bother 
fighting those guys. They're, every one of those guys is going to make the team. None of them are getting cut. But if one of them challenge it, go do it. But he says, do you have to, you know, whether you like it or not, um, there's not that many positions open and you don't have it. But he said, you know what, you, you got to find a way to add value to this team. And uh, whether it's, you know, blocking shots, winning face-off, killing penalties. My job was not to go out there and score goals. <laughs> they, had, they had so much talent. And, uh, and so that was the mindset, getting there, getting, trying to be as physically fit, uh, conditioned, skating, and uh, being in great shape, and, uh, and getting some information by Mark of, of what to do and what not to do in, in training camp. And it was still tough, and it was uh, very competitive. And, uh, and uh, the story about that team, so we go through training camp in the Quebec League. We're, we're, we probably play about uh, seven or eight exhibition games before the season starts. And on average, you, you play about four or five games. No one gets to play in all eight games because everybody gets a chance to get looked at. And uh, so we, we, we brought in, uh, uh, I guess, an enforcer from Alberta. Kid came to Cornwall that year. I won't, I won't, I'll tell a story about him, but I won't reveal his name because he's still a really nice person. <laughs> and, but, so he came in and he was huge, this, this individual. He was like about 6'6 <laughs> six, six off the ice, 6'8 on the ice. Um, funny guy, big head. He, he, his helmet looked like a bottle cap and he had a, a nose so <laughs> flat he could probably bite a wall, you know, just to give you a visual. And um, so we, we played a few exhibition games and, and he'd been in a, a couple of fights because he was our, our champion, you know, like with the, we're playing in that Quebec league and we were going to get challenged a lot being the only um, Ontario team in a Quebec league. Uh, back then there was no Maritimes in the league. So 10, nine Quebec teams, one Ontario team in that league. And uh, at the same time, this is when Quebec was going through in 1980, going through a referendum to separate from Canada. So we were not well liked at all. Uh, uh, easy to hate, but we were winning, being successful. So that, this our guy we brought in from Alberta, been in a few scraps, never really won any, never really lost any. You know, he is. So Mark <laughs> decides uh, during his practice, he goes, calls this guy out. He goes, I'm going to see how tough you are. And he goes, at the end of the practice, we're going to have a scrap. And the guy goes, I don't want to fight you. And Mark goes, well, I'm not asking you. <laughs> so at the end of the practice, um, you know, the two went at it like two gladiators. And Mark uh, bested them. One, one-sided bested them uh, pretty good that day. And then the next day, his locker was cleaned out and he was gone. And uh, Mark came in uh, uh, very, uh, you know, matter of factly, not intimidating anybody, but matter of factly stood up as our captain and addressed everybody in the dressing room. He goes, gents, he goes, toughest guy in our team has just been sent. And he goes, um, we're going to be playing in the Quebec League. And he goes, we will get challenged. Every guy in this team will stand up for their teammate. Every guy in this team will answer the bell when challenged. And he goes, if you don't, I'll see you at the R. And I should have said that because when he, uh, that was the thing, our Royals crest was at center ice. And when he said, I'll see you at the R, that's, uh, that's what it meant. You're inside the ring with Mark. So he, he laid it down. And so we never really had a, a designated tough guy in our team, but we, we kind of played like a tenacious wolf pack. That every, like everyone had to stand up and like a brethren. Um, so, you know, and a lot of times in the Quebec League, they'd always, you know, it was, it was just the way it was. We knew we were in for a battle uh, every night, regardless of the score. 
up a, up a couple of goals, down a couple of goals. It was always going to be a tough, tough go. And then, uh, and then going from the Quebec League to the Ontario League uh, the following year after winning back-to-back Memorial Cups, I think that was uh, Dave Branch was the commissioner, and he's still the commissioner of the league. So bravo to, to Dave Branch for that longevity. But I guess, you know, Ontario, we came back into the Ontario League and there's 14 teams. And I think every team had a circled on their on their calendar that uh, the two-time defending Memorial Cup champions were coming to town from the Quebec League. And it was every team, we, we heard it once, we heard it a thousand times, welcome to the O. And it was rough. <laughs> and I'll tell you, in that 1981-82 season, when we came into the O, there was no tougher place to play than Kitchener. Um for a couple of reasons, like we beat them the year before the Memorial Cup. Uh, they, they were waiting for us and they had a, a talented team in so many ways. Yeah, amazing talent, amazing toughness, uh, well coached. So that, was, uh, so that was like going from Belleville to Cornwall and in the Quebec League and the Ontario League. They kind of leaped through a few stories. <laughs> so. Well, you, one of your stories that I want to hear, you talk about answering the bell. I heard you had to answer the bell once against Gerard Gallant. Oh yeah, I, I, I've told that story a few times. So we're playing. Why I answered the bell it wasn't because I was wanting anything to do with Gerard Gallant. <laughs> he was. I don't think anybody did. No, he was one of those guys. Uh, so for our listeners out there, Gerard Gallant is going to be the new head coach of uh, Seattle um, team. He coached the Las Vegas team, Golden, or and he coached in Florida. Uh, I do believe he was a teammate, a line mate of uh, Stevie Y in Detroit for a long time, had some success. Uh, yeah, so Gerard Gallant was one of those guys in junior. He was um, a Maritimer. I'm not sure what province he was, but uh, he wasn't from Quebec, but they could still draft out of the Maritime League. Um, but he was a guy who would get you 40 to 50 goals a year, 60 assists. Like he'd be 100 points a season, but he'd be about 270 minutes of penalties. Like, <laughs> Not the guy. So we're in the playoffs and we're playing Sherbrooke Beavers in the uh, semifinal. This is the team that Cornwall beat the year before in the finals to go. So there was a bit of a hatred in that going. That series ended up going seven games. Um, we won all four in Cornwall and lost all three in Sherbrooke. So I don't know. We're, I guess we're in maybe game six or so up in Sherbrooke. And then they were, they're always close games in Sherbrooke. We either lost in overtime by a goal and we kind of blow them out in Cornwall. But um, So I was playing on a line with uh, Dougie, Doug Gilmore at the time. And of any, there was about three guys on our team that if anyone tried to have, go at them, the team would have to stand up, whoever's closest. If anybody went after Howard Chuck, but no one was stupid enough to do that. Um, he was such a talented player. He made... And he was easily the best player in junior hockey then and there at that time. And he won the CHL player. Uh, then Dougie was another guy. Like, you couldn't let anybody touch Dougie because he was all about five foot nine, 140 pounds at the time. And we had another guy, Roy Russell, who was a fast skating, uh, a smaller forward. So I was playing with Dougie, and Gerard Glant wanted to get a piece of him. Go figure, right? So, and, and he's just wants to get Gilmore. We're in a heated game. It's in the third period or early the third. And he wants Gilmore. And I'm like, Oh gosh, I can't let him get Doug Gilmore because if I do, then Mark Crawford's going to have me at the R practice. At the R. <laughs> so he's trying to get the Dougie 
and uh, so I get in between and I'll stand up to Glant. I'm kind of like, I don't know, talking a bit. And uh, thank God his English was perfect. He is English, but he's also speaks French, of course, as well. But he's uh, he's wanting, he wants to get to Gilmore. And I'm kind of the door that he has to open up to get to him. And we're talking, and he wants, and he's just, and he's just fuming. He, he's looking at Gilmore. He doesn't even see me. He looks like I'm invisible almost. He's just looking at Gilmore and he's like, yeah, get out of my way. Like there's something I'm like, I can't. So, but anyways, it's just as things are starting to calm down, I'm feeling like, oh, good, good, good. This guy, because I, mean, I wasn't, things would have got in. Well, it did in a way. Um, so he wants to get at Dougie and things are calming down finally. And as things are finally calming down, I, I feel the stick between my leg and it's Doug, Dougie standing behind me, but he's sliding his stick, the tip of his stick through my legs and <laughs> right into the groin of Gerard Gallant. And I feel this and I see this. And I go, oh my God. <laughs> so right away, Gallant goes nuts. And he's like, he's like the Tasmanian devil. He's like, and, and so I got to grab a hold of him and hang on for dear life. And, but that, and that end, and eventually, I think that led to a wrench ball coming off because they came off. There, it was a heated series. So, and, so that was my Gerard Gallant story. Um, you know, and that's all, that, all I did was hang on for dear life because he is, was a brute. Uh, a tough guy and oh was he mad <laughs> he, he never did get a hold of Gilmore and of course Gilmore would just keep chirping at him I'm like oh god <laughs> yeah. you know, and, I, and I've said that story in front of Dougie again to your friends it's not like this is he knows it yeah he, he still gets a chuckle out of it <laughs> we've mentioned the name uh, a couple of times and you just referenced of course the one-time CHL player of the year in the now late, far too soon gone is Dale Howarchuk, whose yeah. NHL career speaks for itself as Canada Cup. Chris and I actually had a chance on a previous podcast to talk to him about that famous face-off in the 87 Canada Cup and whatnot. But what was it like playing with Dale? I mean, his skill speaks for itself, yeah. but you're there as a teammate. What yeah. are you absorbing from him? What are you seeing? I'm going to go back. I'll get to the teammates. So growing up in Belleville, Dale grew up in Oshawa. And Dougie grew up in Kingston. And we played against each other from the ages of 8 to 16. So I probably faced off against Dale Howarchuk uh, eight times a year anyway. And that team that he played in Oshawa, um, this is one minor hockey team. They had five players off that team eventually play in the NHL. They had Peter Sudurkowitz as a goaltender. They had Dale DeGray on defense. You know, Brown, like, imagine that. And they won six provincial titles. Uh, from Adam or from Adam through Bantam. And I believe they won the Pee Wee tournament in Quebec. Uh, so I, I knew Dale. I knew who he was. <laughs> uh, and then finally to be a teammate of his after have been like, obviously he was the most talented player, the best player on the, on the, the most talented minor hockey team I've ever seen in my life. Uh, Dougie was the best player on Kingston and arguably I was probably our best player in Belleville. So we, we had had a lot of memorable battles competing. Uh, and then when we got, all got to be teammates together, it was a real special feeling. So I finally got to see Dale's greatness. And, and I knew how good he was as minor hockey, but he's one of those players that just continued to excel. The higher the level of competition, the better he got. Um, I don't know. It's hard to imagine that. But, so I saw him as just – Obviously, you can't miss first pick, first overall, CHL player of the year. Um, 
And also in that year, I think when, when Cornwall, by virtue of winning the 1979-80 Memorial Cup season, back then, whoever won the Memorial Cup went to play in the World Junior Hockey Championships. So Cornwall was the last team to do that. And they went to Fusion in 1981. And uh, Dale was there. And they, they finished six, I think, in the 18 tournament, didn't get there. But they lost two games to the Americans and the Germans by one goal. Um, but Dale realized that, you know, he said, wow, I got to get better because uh, the Russian team had beaten Cornwall seven to three. And actually in that uh, Cornwall was winning two to one at the time and had a five on three power play and Russia scored two shorthanded goals to take the lead and went on. But he came back and said, wow. And he, he thought, you know, he didn't rest on being like the number one can't miss player. He goes, I got to be better. There's he, he to his like, you know, he was all about, he was never cocky. He was, he, he, he just, he was always grounded. Um, everybody knew he was going to go first overall. And he was just, matter of fact, never, never ever said like me or that. He accepted, well, he knew we relied on him to score. Like, you know, he could not put a better player out there on the ice when you needed a goal. But so grounded, so calm, tremendous poise, um, treated everybody great. And, but when he came back from that, that international tournament, he just said, you know, we got to be better and I got to be better. And to hear your best player say that, like, I'm not good enough. I got to be better. And then he just went on a different glide path after that. So I got to a new Dale as a boy, uh, as a teammate. You know, and then I, obviously I watched his career progress and, and always uh, cheering for him at every level. And then later on in his life, um, <clears throat> I got invited out to three of his golf tournaments, his uh, charity golf tournaments that he does for uh, uh, when he was the coach of the uh, Barry Colts. And I got invited a few times. And, and so did a couple of his teammates from Oshawa that he invited. Not NHL, like a lot of NHL celebrities were there. Um, there's an event sponsored by Andrew Jackson, who's uh, for Jackson events. He's a good friend of mine in Dale. So I got to see Dale after his career but still you know and he brought his sons to the tournament who were tremendous golfers as well his golf tournaments so I got to see him as a also as a, a father and as a husband in addition to being a spectacular player and, and as great of a player he was I, I think when I saw him like in that environment with his wife and children probably a better father and a, and a better better husband and it was a real shame that, uh, that he succumbed to cancer the past year. Uh, and what it did do, though, shortly after that, a um, good friend of our, Eric Calder, a teammate, and actually from Kitchener-Waterloo area, uh, put an email, and he put about 30 of us in contact, and just a few uh, Dale stories uh, came out about guys who were going back, way back, and some NHL, some junior stories, and other stories about his life. So, yeah, just a, just a tremendous talent, and very generous, uh, kind person obviously playing against him you knew what kind of player he was but oh. your first year your first year there he i looked it up he had a in 72 games yeah. he had 183 points yeah. <laughs> like you look at those numbers and i laughed while writing it i'm like what yeah. is like i, I yeah. wrote on my paper pardon but what was it like actually there how many times did you you know as a teammate look at watching what he did on the ice whether in practice or a game and just look to another teammate and go what are we watching here well he was so the thing about Dale is anytime 
he, he wasn't the prettiest skater. He was unorthodox, but, but he was hard to take the puck off of. He was, he was like unorthodox and like he had some shaky moves. And if he had uh, a one-on-one with the defenseman, honest to God, like he'd beat him six times out of 10, maybe seven, get by the defenseman and then get a one-on-one with the goalie and probably be beat the goalie three to four times out of five. Like he, like nobody does that in, in junior. Like, you know, even maybe Sidney Crosby in his day or whoever, but Dale would just, he could beat anybody. And so he was always a threat to score. And what he did was he gave us a chance to win, a really good chance to win every night. And so for me, like being a third line, fourth line player, I, you know, I just had, to, it was easy. Like the coach just told me my job was to go out on the ice, um, play hard. You don't necessarily play tough, but play hard, not get scored on. And if I did that, and then I, my reward was I'd sometimes get to play against the other team's top line and shut them down. And, and so on a team that was that talented, like when I got there, they'd already won the Memorial Cup. There's only a few spots open. Normally you go to a team every third year, right? So there's always eight or nine positions open with, with a few spares. But that team only had about four really open positions, and that's unheard of. And, and it was so talented. Um, so the thing is, if you don't bring value added in a sport that's all about winning, and I'll say for the listeners, the biggest thing about playing minor hockey, you play it for the love of the game, your teammates. But when you when you get into the OHL and definitely the NHL, it, it becomes a business, and and it is uh, and it's all about winning. Uh, the coaches and staff either get fired or hired based on winning. So that idea of winning and winning and winning, it, it's you know, I'm not saying, you know, you know you're going to lose some games, but boy, you don't want to lose two in a row or three in a row because that, that's – and Dale was kind of one of those guys that could stop a losing streak. You just knew he was, you know, over a three – one of the – every third game he was going to get a hat trick or something or he was going to have a four or five-point night. So he was kind of like, uh, you know, like Doc Holliday when the Blue Jays weren't that great. You just knew, oh, good, he's going to stop a losing streak. That was Dale. Uh, he could win, but – he made sure we didn't lose two in a row. He was that good. It's so interesting, Steve, looking back at the two years you spend in Cornwall. The first year, you're still part of the Quebec League. The second year, you're into the Ontario Hockey League that you've already talked about. And I can't help but think that no matter which league you're playing in as a member of the Cornwall Royals at that time, there are no easy road trips. There is no close city, really, to where Cornwall is. 40 mm-hmm. years later, what are your memories of some of those road trips that you had to take during that time? Actually, the Ontario League was harder um, than the Quebec League for traveling-wise and also physical. The Quebec League was tough mentally because, you know, the fans were so hated you as well. Um, not hated you personally, hated you because you're the anglo team playing in the Quebec League. Um, but the traveling, like most of the teams were in Montreal. So Cornwall to Montreal was two hours, you know, and only Shikutami and Quebec City were, were kind of an overnight stay. So, but the same token, though, anything you went to Trois-Rivières, Shawinigan, uh, Sorrell, uh, Sherbrooke, you weren't getting home till like 3.30 in the morning kind of thing after a long road trip. And you had to be in school the next day and then practice. Going to the O, um, anything – so we're in Cornwall. So I think geez, well, it's, it's probably five hours to Toronto, just one way. I think Cornwall to yeah. – 
usually four and a half. Winners, let's say Canadian winners, let's, let's say five hours. So anything past Toronto was an overnight stay. Like we weren't coming back. So for us, it was Ottawa was the nearest team. Uh, then Kingston, Belleville, Peterborough, Oshawa. So playing those teams was there and back. And if we went to Toronto and then we'd probably go to Toronto instead of coming back to Cornwall, we might overnight and then head down to play the Brantford or London Knights or something. But the one road trip, oh boy, it was, uh, you know, uh, we'd go and we'd go play North Bay, maybe on a Tuesday. So we'd, we'd sometimes leave Monday to get in Monday night, have a good night's sleep. Uh, pre-game skate in the morning Tuesday, play Tuesday night. And then Thursday night would be in Sudbury. And then you'd get Saturday in Sault Ste. Marie. And then swing down from Sault Ste. Marie to Southern Ontario and play a team on a Sunday. And that's a long trip. And then, and then maybe, yeah, and then Sunday, try to work your way back to Cornwall. You'd be out of school for a whole week, or not that's you know schooling is important, but it's a business. You're there to play hockey, uh, not not and then the day. But a lot of teams wouldn't tell you that. But that that's you're there, and you got to win. So we'd be playing these teams that were just licking their chops, waiting for us to come in as part of the Quebec League and defending Memorial Cup champs, and just travel. Like you're talking, like this is in northern northern Ontario in the middle of winter. Good God, it's, it's, it's a long way. Um, and then playing. So it, it was tough, like going on four or five game road trips in like five games and seven nights or something like that, or eight nights. And it was just, uh, and then it would just take a lot out of you. It was, it was difficult, but it's, it's what it was. I'm sure, you know, the Western League guys, are like, ah, it's nothing. <laughs> 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 We're talking about going across provinces to play hockey, but it, it, it was, uh, yeah, you guys didn't have cell phones and iPads and maybe even no, none of that VHS stuff. on the and, bus. And what was it like? And we didn't have, uh, you know, if you were a first year player, you were two to a seat. You know? yeah. so there was not no chairs or benches or beds that folded out or none of that stuff. Uh, long road trips uh, and a lot about trying to maintain focus. And God forbid, if you do that road trip, you if you go to North North Bay. Uh, Sudbury, Sault Ste. Marie, let's say Windsor, maybe another Brantford or something on the way back. If you went like one and four in those five games, like that, that seven hour bus trip back to Cornwall was terrible. Like there, there is no joking, there is no laughing, but you know, if you happen to go three and two or four and one, but we weren't that good of a team like we were in the past, like we were, we were an okay team, but you know, after winning back to back Memorial Cups, it, it's hard. There's a reason why teams don't go to the Memorial Cups three years in a row. It's, you just, it's hard to you, – you, all your best players get drafted early. Um, and, and, I, and I'll take – I'll go back to your Kitchener Rangers, um, the team we met. A lot of similarities. So we, we went to the 79-80. Uh, Cornwall wasn't supposed to win. They are a bit of a Cinderella. They won it. And when Kitchener showed up in Windsor in 80-81, we met them in the final. They, they were – you know, they, they were just shot short of being on greatness. They were a very, really good team. And the thing I'll bring up for, for the Kitchener uh, base fan, lucky for us, uh, there, there was a kid by the name of Paul Coffey 
who was playing out for the Edmonton Oilers team then. And he was eligible to play junior. And if I think of that 1980-81 Kitchener Ranger team, that would have had Paul Coffey back on defense, probably playing 35 minutes a game. How good would that team have been? How good would that team have been? He was good. Yeah. <laughs> he, he, you know, as good as Dale was for our team, how incredible he was. Think of Paul Coffey if he came back and played one more year of junior. How good would he have been? Coffey outlet pass to Bellows? Sounds good. He's, well, he's, you know what? Okay, here, here's, here's your second and third defenseman, Al McGinnis and Scott Stevens. <laughs> exactly. We, uh, and we, then you got Dave Shaw. There's another guy. <laughs> we, we had Joe McDonnell, who had been the captain yeah. of that 81 team before he was stripped of the captaincy and it was given to Bellows. But we had him recently on the podcast, and we talked about that very thing. Like, here's Joe Mack, who in his own right is a very good defenseman. But yeah. look at the depth on that blue line with those Kitchener Rangers teams. Well, yeah, so good look. I'll, I'll go back. I think it was the 82 draft. Um, Bellows went second overall. Should, I don't know why he didn't go first. I think Boston and Minnesota did a drug deal there or something, but Boston took Lord Kluzak in the first overall. But Minnesota, or sorry, uh, yeah, so th- th- there had to be something done because Brian Bellows was their overwhelming first pick. Overwhelming. So he went second uh, to Minnesota, I believe, yeah. Uh, Scott Stevens went fifth that year in the draft and Dave Shaw went 13th. So that like, I, I dare, I don't know what's it, but I can guarantee you there's no, since then never has any team had three top picks in the first 13. And, that's crazy. Uh, that's, uh, that, that's how good that team was. Uh, and then, you know, then everyone else you had up there, Larmer and uh, Martin was a good player. And you know, so I, I Going back to that 81-82 um, Kitchener Memorial Cup team, haven't haven't played against them a bit, study them, and then I went on to coach minor hockey. I adopted, I call it my Kitchener Rangers power play, and uh, and I taught that to my kids uh, back in Adam, and uh, even my daughter's team. I coached them a few times, and I had the girls doing it. Now I got to explain it to you what it is. Yeah, so, we yeah, need exactly. to know this. that was Go the on. follow-up question for <laughs> sure. <All right. laughs> So I'm going to uh, take notes here, Mo, just a sec. Okay. All right. So I, I'll try to paint it as best I can so you can visualize it. So obviously I, I think they're the power play when we played them, when we had to go down to Kitchener after now Cornwall's in the Ontario league. Uh, so they got uh, Bellows up front with Martin and Larmer. And you got uh, Al McInnes and Scott Stevens on defense. And those two guys are on defense. I call them the like windshield wipers. They could just pass the puck back and forth. And when it's unique about them, both of them kind of stood on the very blue line or even outside of the blue line just to give them extra distance. So the puck would go, and it was probably Martin. You had probably Bellows and Larmer in front of the net, two fairly big guys. Martin would be on the half wall, kind of think of him, think him on the right wing half wall with um, – uh, with Stevens on the left defense and Al McGinnis on the right. So he's on McGinnis's side. So the puck would come to the half wall. He'd pass it back to McGinnis. McGinnis would, would one time it over to Scott Stevens. And this is, and so now our forwards, everybody, all the forwards, the box, their eyes would forehead would all shift, watch the puck go from McGinnis over to Scott Stevens as a one timer. As soon as it hit Stevens' stick, rifled it right back to McGinnis. Actually, he put the puck 
probably about five or six feet in front of McGinnis. So remember his skates are on the blue line or outside the blue line, right-hand shot. So he'd take about two strides and receive that puck from uh, Scott Stevens on the pass. Now as that, so this puck, this is going really quick. This isn't, boom, boom, it's like, boom, boom. Like I said, windshield wipers, back and forth. Now as that puck went from McGinnis over to Stevens the first time, Martin would come off that half wall and he had set a backdoor trap on the forward, who's now, because he's following the puck. So he sees the puck over to Stevens, and right back it comes back to McGinnis in, like, in a second. So now he turns to go to McGinnis, and there's Martin backdoor. So McGinnis is wide, takes a couple of strides, catches the puck on the tape, takes about two more strides. Now he's at the top of the circle. Our forward out there can't get to him because Martin's got a backdoor, uh, which is now probably called obstruction in today's game. But would backdoor him, and McGinnis would come to the top of the circle with about four strides, and that's shot of his. And nobody wanted to block that shot. Nobody. No, our defensemen weren't trying to block it. And his shot would be about two inches off the ice. And he's just here. If he didn't score, it went off a post, or else. You know, but then you, you know, there was a rebound. You had Larmer and Bellows sort of deflecting it. it. It couldn't stop it. It was, it was, and I, and I did that with kids 9, 10, 11, 12 years of age. And, you know, it was, it was almost unfair. <laughs> I enjoyed coaching kids. Forget players. I don't think there were goalies that wanted to stop that shot. No, no, no. <laughs> Whoops. Yeah. So he, he was, it was, and it's, it was a thing of beauty to see how, and it was so fast. It wasn't like I described it. And I, I think you guys, hope your, your, your um, listeners and your fan base, you get it, but it, it was, it happened the way I described it. It happened 10 times faster. It was just like three passes back door. Boom. And if it didn't work the first time it was going to go and it could go either way. So if it went to the other wall, then it was Scott Stevens who let it rip, you know, We've talked about a lot of former teammates of yours and guys you've played against, but your career, Mo, it, you had a chance to go pro, but instead you decided to go at the time, OUAA now, right. uh, U sports. Right. What, what went into that decision? Why didn't you pursue pro? Well, yeah. So I, I had left Cornwall my third year. I had knee surgery in the off season and I didn't quite come back in the shape or form I want to do. It was uh at the time, I was told uh, doing physiotherapy all the time, and I was 19 years old, so I was a third-year junior player. And the prognosis, I went and saw Dr. Samerta, who was um, the orthopedic in Kingston, one of the top in Ontario, and he basically said, you know, your your, be- your better hockey days are behind you, and that um, and that you're going to be arthritic by the time you're 40. And, and then, as a 19-year-old kid. Who, whose ambition since I was probably about 12 years old was to play pro. Um, and, and it also comes, I'll get into about OHL, CHL versus uh, NCAA at the time too. But so that, that happened. And, and so, and rightfully so it's a business Cornwall, uh, Bob Kilger, a uh, great coach and a friend, even to this, you know, I still uh, respect him. Uh, totally. He called me into the office and said, you know, we, we have to let you go. You're 19 years of age. Um, at best, you won't be able to play till mid to end November. We're going to keep a 17 year old kid and let you go. And then nice to him. He goes, Mo, if there's anything I can ever do to help you later on in life. Let me know. And uh, so, I'm, 
you know, and I'll get to that. But anyway, so when I, I end up going into Royal Military College and, and chose a, a career path, and I put uh, Bob Gilger down as a reference, and I'm sure that helped uh, my resume get accepted. And, uh, and Bob went on to be a member of parliament and the mayor of Cornwall and all that kind of stuff. Um, so anyway, I, I came back home to Belleville and I worked on, I, I was one of the few players that get grade 13 in Cornwall. We had the 21 players on the team. I think four of us got our grade 13. It was, it was hard, uh, but my marks weren't the greatest. And so I decided I went back and then I did what I called grade 14. I was 20 years, 19 turned 20 years old in high school, uh, trying to get my marks up for uh, another career choice. Uh, and while I was back home doing physio in Belleville uh, every day, I had a really good physiotherapist and she was just saying, you know what, don't just keep moving, never stop. She, she always said to me, motion is the best lotion. Uh, stay active, stay fit. And, and, and I, I tried to do that as long as I could. And it really seemed to get me over the hump. But um, the problem, uh, so I, I was done. And to me, I was done playing hockey. I was like, you know, I gave it a shot. I'll, I'll do something else. And my mom was just, you know, I was at home. Was kind of, Stephen, you seem to be moping around a bit. You don't seem to be, notice I said Stephen. My mother calls me Stephen. No. <laughs> um, you don't seem to be yourself and all that stuff. But what I didn't know at the time, Floyd Crawford, who we mentioned earlier in the program, was coaching that junior B team that we went to the Southern Cup with. She goes, Floyd wants you to come out and play. Went, no, I don't, I don't want to play junior B after winning, you know, playing junior A. She goes, just, but I had a bunch of good buddies. Uh, that I grew up playing minor hockey with in the Belleville area. I said, oh, why don't you give it a shot? So I had been on physio through all of uh, August, September, October, November, and I think mid-December I went out and played. I wasn't even sure I could I went out and have one little practice with them. I didn't have been in on skates at all in about three and a month. And I went and played uh, our first game, and we are playing a game. And so the very first shift playing with all these buddies, I just took a run at a kid and got a penalty, but I just had to test out my knee to see whether or not it could handle it. You know, I just, I ended up playing that well. We ended up winning the game. I had a good game and we, we had a really good run uh, playing for Floyd, that team. Like Floyd knew what buttons to press for me and get me going. And we made a really, I think we got beat out uh, in the, the fourth round. I think it takes six rounds to win the Southern Cup, something ridiculous. So we were getting close. We got to the fourth round and got knocked out. But in the meantime, I had already applied and been accepted to go to Royal Military College in Kingston and, and look at another career. Uh, um, but unbeknownst to me, after we got knocked out of the playoffs, I think we're, you know, maybe early April or still going on mid-April. And Floyd had uh, uh, got a, offered a contract to me through uh, the AHL, a 10-game tryout for $1,000 a game. And I had to tell him no, because I already accepted an offer to go to Royal Military College and play in the OUAA. Uh, and he, he couldn't, at the time, I won't say, he, he didn't appreciate that. He was like, you're a hockey player. This is what you got to do. Uh, you know, tell you why you go play in that team. And, you know, when you play in the NHL, you can walk on to any NHL camp. And if you're not drafted, you can get a guaranteed tryout. Because um, was, hockey was his life. And when I told him it wasn't my life anymore, and, and I, I did give it a, a shot, uh, but I thought, you know what, I'll, I'll, I'll give this other calling, uh, another career opportunity. And, uh, and that was, but it was, the thing that made it really hard was um, going, so I was 20 years old, uh, just turned 20 in, in March, and that was April. 
And the thing about RMC, if you were 21 years of age, you couldn't get in at the time. There, there's a limit on joining RMC. And I was 20, so it was, you know, I would have had another year. I probably would have taken the contract and gave it a shot. But, you know, it, it was really, which way do I go? And uh, my to this day, my kids, oh, Dad, do you ever regret? Do you ever have any regrets? I go, none whatsoever. Because, you know, there was... I really enjoyed the, the career path I took, the life I, I've lived and served. Um, and, you know, it was, I gave it a shot. And that's all I can say. It wasn't uh, due to any, any shortcomings or failures. It's a tough, tough business. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of great players that uh, uh, don't necessarily make the NHL. And uh, that's, that's unfortunate. There's a lot of talent out there. You, you just described it, Steve, as, as a calling to go to RMC. And you, you mentioned earlier uh, your father's service in World War One. How much did that influence your decision to choose the path that you ultimately chose? Uh, I'll be honest up front. Like that was that was big. My dad had served, and uh, and he, he worked thirty six years as, as an engineer in the railroad. So that once you gave up your word, your, your commitment. There's to me, I, that's it. I'm going to be dedicated. That's what I do. Once you make up your mind, you got to do a lot of consider, a lot of factors, lots of choices, implications. But once I'm committed. I mean, I'm all in. Um, the other thing, what I go, uh, the thing unique about RMC, it's that when you go there, it, it's like being on a full scholarship. It's better than being on a full scholarship. You get paid while you're going there to RMC. So initially I, I, I thought, well, this is just like free tuition, free meals. No, you get paid because you're, you're holding a rank of officer cadet. So in the early 80s, like I got to RMC in 83, probably making about a thousand dollars a month as, as an officer cadet, you know, and that gets taxed somewhat, but, but still that's, that, that is gravy for any university. But the deal is for four years of uh, university, you have to do four years of service. Now it's five years of service. So it's really a nine year commitment and being the 10th of 11 kids. And my dad had just retired in 1981, you know, and it's trying to take out OSAP loans or do anything like that. But my parents didn't have the money to put me through university. Uh, that was my best opportunity to put myself through it. Um, it was a challenge to get there. It's a very difficult uh, university to get into. Um, a lot of applications. Um, and having a Memorial Cup resume uh, on your resume definitely helps. Um, I'm not going to believe it. The other thing about it, I'll go back to the OHL, is that um, NCAA at the time was, you know, it's not the same as today. The NCAA to me is a higher caliber. There's a lot of kids that can get drafted out of the NCAA. But back then, um, I think as a 16, 17-year-old, you have to make a choice. Do I go OHL or do I go NCAA? And the, the issue is that the OHL drafts you at age 16, 17, after grade 11, whatever that was, at that age. Um, so you make that choice. The NCAA cannot approach you until you completed grade 12. And so back then, um, if you wanted to play NHL, you went OHL. The NCAA was good, but that was usually for the smaller, faster, talented guys that just didn't have the size. And back then, that's what the scouts were looking for. You had to be big. You had to be fast as well. So it was a good option. Um, and then, you know, and then I'll go to something else. Is the, um, so that was sort of a long story, but Mike asked me about getting uh, turned down, the, uh, getting into RMC. But prior to that, the NCAA was um, – 
again, it was, was kind of a second tier, whereas the OHL was tier one. And, and that was the way about 80% of the draft was out of the CHL. Um, and then that miracle on ice happened in 1980. And don't get me wrong. I, I, I was cheering for the Americans. Great to see them. But in all honesty, it, it was a fluke. Uh, that, that Soviet Union team was a powerhouse. And, and by them, virtue of them winning the uh, gold medal, which is all good, but it really kind of screwed up the draft uh, for about the next three years, the OHL. Not, not, not the first round, per se. The first rounders were all top-tier players. But um, in the second, third, and fourth rounds, a lot of kids were getting drafted in the NHL out of U.S. high schools and some colleges. That, and whereas you see guys like, you know, you look at some of those drafts, like even the 83 draft where uh, I'll just put some names out there. Yari Curry went in the fourth round. And to uh, Glenn Anderson went in the fourth round, and I had a good conversation about that with him. Doug Gilmore went in the seventh round. Um, There's just a lot of players uh, that got, you know got drafted that kind of threw it out of, out of a whack, I think. And even even to the point, and, and nothing against, like in 1983, uh, Brian Lawton got first pick first overall by Minnesota, and he was a Minnesota high school phenom or something like that. Nothing against Brian Lawton, a very respectable NHL player and a general manager. But if you look at the guys who went two, three, and four that year, uh, Turgeon, Pat LaFontaine, and Stevie Y. Boy, I don't know. There's quite a discrepancy. And we just, we just felt, and I'm sure a lot of Kitchen Ranger players in that era too, um, probably thought that, you know, there's guys going second, third, fourth round in the NHL out of U.S. high schools or colleges that couldn't make their teams. Wouldn't it, wouldn't it make the 81-82 Rangers? There's no way they would have made it. And yet they were getting drafted on there. So um, and there isn't any sour grapes or anything. It was great for American hockey. It, 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 it got the NCAA where it needed to go. And now it's a very competitive league. Um, and, and today, I, I imagine kids who get drafted into the OHL or decide, which route do I go? What, do I go play OHL, leave home at 16, turn 17? Or do I wait a year and go NCAA? Because NCAA can't approach you until you're – that's a tough call because back then it was easy. The OHL was superior to the NCAA, and it's, it's a little bit different. Um, the bottom line is if you're, if you're, you're really talented, uh, you're going to make it no matter which way to go. But I, I would still pursue that the CHL is a better a- amateur league uh, than the NCAA for prospects of being an NHL hockey player. But it's it's much closer than it used to be. Mo, you're now, as we talk, a lieutenant colonel retired after 30 years of service to this country. First of all, thank you. Indeed, I echo that. Second of all, um, looking back on that time, Bosnia, Kosovo, a couple trips to Afghanistan. After that 30 years of service, do you look differently at your Memorial Cup championship? given that it is a Memorial Cup? Yeah. Um, so, uh, yes, definitely. Because it, it's the thing about it, because I had a lot of teammates go on to have Hall of Fame careers and coaches and play for longevity. And what they even said is that the opportunity to win a Memorial Cup is you've got three years at best to win one. And I'm not saying it's – and there's probably – I don't know how many teams are in the CHL. must be over 40. I think CHL wide now we're 60. Yeah. 60. Okay. All right. 60. And I know there's 
30, about to be 32 teams. Once Seattle joins, uh, there'll be 32 teams. Uh, and don't get me wrong, the NHL is is a beast. I mean, I went for the guys to win that. It is without a doubt the toughest trophy to win in professional sports. To win four rounds, uh, playing the same team night after night after night. Uh, but if you know, in your careers or whatever, but to win the Memorial Cup it is very difficult. Uh, and sometimes you got to be lucky because not always the best team. It's such a short window to play, and you have to be at your peak, uh, and maybe even getting a lucky break here or there to win it. So I, I look back at it, and it, 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 I think it, it means more to me today than it does back then. If that was 40 years later, I've seen it. I'm very proud. I love watching the Memorial Cup uh, series. Uh, it has changed a bit, and, and I'm not, I'm not always a fan of the home team host getting a berth. Uh, it, it, I, there's pros and cons to it. I know business-wise, it's nice to have a team hosting it because it's going to make sure there's 5,000 to 10,000 people at every game sold out. But I, I just wonder, like the other teams, um, I, I, the last Memorial Cup I went to was in 2017. It was in Windsor. And Windsor Spitfires ended up beating the Erie team in the final by a goal. But Windsor got knocked out in the first round. And they had 42 days off. That's six weeks, full weeks, without playing a, uh, a, a sanctioned game. Mind you, they had exhibition games somewhere or traveled or did something. But those other three teams in that tournament had to go through three more wars to get there and win. And you could tell that the Windsor team was that much fresher. That much, and then playing on home ice. And they were winning all those games by a goal or overtime. And it, to, to me, it just felt... You know, that uh, was, uh, you know, good on them that they won. Don't get me wrong. And they're not the only team to have done that, that, that a, a team that's hosted it and got knocked out in the first round when Ottawa did it, I think, in, as well. Ottawa 67s. But it's just to me, it's not, you know, to host it on home ice and be fresher, substantially fresher than the three uh, league champions. It, it's a huge advantage. But it, it is what it is, and you can debate it one way or the other. It's, I'm just going back to. Uh, yeah. You're starting to sound like me and Popey. We we talk about this stuff all the time. That's kind of our role in this league these days is to to speculate and debate things like this. But we had that very conversation as others did, other fans did in yeah. that to Memorial Cup run for Windsor yeah. for sure. Yeah, I, I totally get the business side of it, the supporter of it, uh, and, and you're me. You know, me. It's just not random. They they take a team that is one of the top teams in the league that they think, okay, they're, they're going to, you know, they get, they get told in advance. And the other thing is that they can, they can guarantee that they're going to be at the Memorial Cup so they can make a few ambitious trades. Let's just say, you know, take trade away next year's first or second round draft pick to get, you know, a couple of these salty veterans off other teams and have a really good run at it, knowing they're going to be in the Memorial Cup. And I don't blame a team for doing that. I would do that. If I knew I was going to the Memorial Cup, I would trade away my future. You know, I'm, I'm not the whole future but for a year in order to win a Memorial Cup. I would never hesitate to do that. I'd do it in a heartbeat. If you got Memo- Sorry, Mo, that Memorial Cup you won. Yeah. Uh, we talked about your time at RMC, obviously. You yeah. get, you're the first member of that organization to get their number retired after 205 points. Yeah. Seeing that number 23 go to the rafters, the Memorial Cup, or having your son Cameron come over and play with you on your team while serving in Europe. What is the pinnacle of your career? Well, well, they're all three different, you know, okay. So 
And on Cameron's a, listening, so you have to go with that. Okay. So <laughs> on, a, on, a personal, on a personal level, playing with my son, who I coached in minor hockey, to play in a sanctioned tournament in Europe. It was actually a military tournament. And by the way, a little anecdote, our line mate in that tournament was Mark Crawford. He, Mark, Mark was coaching the Zurich Lions at the time, Austin Matthews, in fact, when yeah. Matthews was 16 years old. So I was in Naples, Italy, and we were going to a, team, a hockey tournament in Garmisch, Germany. That's where the 1936 Winter Olympics were held in Garmisch. And uh, so Mark had actually called me up and said, hey, why don't you come up to Zurich and spend a weekend here? I'll take you out of the town. His wife, Helen, so she was still, you know, coming back and forth from Canada to, to Switzerland. She wasn't taking up full-time residence there. He goes, yeah, I got to come up to my apartment. And I go, I'll tell you what, why don't you, why don't you come and meet us in Garmisch and he goes, yeah, I think I'll scout you. And I'm laughing. I'm like, I got a better offer for you. I want you to bring some gear. He goes, I haven't played a game in 30 years. And I go, come on, bring your gear. And, so, and you're a winger. You're not a centerman on yeah, this team, so Mark, Mark. You wouldn't make it. And boy, I'm, gonna, I'm not in front of an ethics commission here at all. But uh, so we gave him a false identity. It was a, a, a teammate of ours because you had to you had to be uh, military, or you or or had to, or it could be a dependent. So my son could play. That was fair. He was still uh, going to college at the time. So I, I flew him over to Germany for a week to play in a hockey tournament. So a guy in our team before, an officer, uh, his name was Tony Stabili. So Mark came over and was Tony Stabili for a couple of, for, for a game of playing with us. And he played, of course, he played with me and my son. So that, that has a special uh, feeling to it. Um, but the, obviously most memorial, the thing that, Oh, I, I would say the Memorial Cup is, is, is quite an achievement. Um, it, it resonates with me. It opened up doors. Uh, if I didn't play on a Memorial Cup, would that open the door to get me into RMC? It definitely helped. I'm not going to lie to anybody. It would have moved my application up the list a bit. Um, and, then, and then playing in there and then playing uh, all the time with RMC. And again, it wasn't never about the point. It was for us at RMC. We were, we were like a high. We had six hundred students at the college, and out of that six hundred, uh, about seventy-five percent, so almost four hundred and eighty of them, were engineers, and you know only about one hundred and twenty or so in the arts programs. So th there's no easy courses at, at RMC. It's 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 there. It's very challenging. Um, so you got a student body of about six hundred, and and. And I got to be honest, I, I was the only one who had played uh, CHL caliber hockey. There, but there are a lot of good, good players there who played maybe some junior B or midget or high school and stuff like that. But but people there are to be career officers and whatever to excel in other venues. They're not necessarily there to be. Um, but athleticism is, is an important role. But it's, it's just a different caliber. So for us to play – um, if we didn't play our best or weren't prepared, we, we'd get slaughtered or embarrassed. So for us to come out in, you know, 24 games a season and we'd win five, tie five. So 10 out of the 24 games, we, we were in them, winning them or tying them. And the other 14 losses, I think our best year, we had 10 one-goal losses or maybe an empty net or two. So, but, but you know, if we weren't prepared and we weren't the best – shape or physical condition, we, we, we could get beat by touchdowns. And sometimes we did. Sometimes we just hit a team that was so much more talent and on a roll 
but they were far and few between, between at the end. But uh, so it's just that, hey, let's not get embarrassed. It wasn't just about trying to, trying to do anything uh, personal accolades. It was just trying to develop a team. And again, having everybody know what their job was, what their role was, and, and, and to execute it, what we had to do to win. Or we weren't necessarily, we just were there to compete. We had to compete and be able to hold our head up time. And a lot of times we, we, we even had coaches from other teams that were powerhouses like Western. And at uh, the time after a 2-1 loss, they'd, they'd be coming into our dressing room and actually shake our hands and saying, we hate playing you guys. You guys are so tough. And then I had some teammates playing uh, on those teams, like in Guelph. I had a few guys out there and their coach would go, I don't, I don't know about these RMC guys. They're, they're not good hockey players, but they're in great shape. They've been pulling tanks all summer, <laughs> you know, and just sort of having fun and, but that, that was kind of the, the ethos is, is be prepared uh, and, and work hard. Just try to outwork. Um, wins were few and far between, but but we'd take them when we got them. Well, you, you certainly didn't get embarrassed the night you scored a personal touchdown with the two-point conversion, I might add, hanging yeah. eight on my alma mater at the University of Waterloo. Yeah, they, they, were, uh, they were a really good team uh, at that time. It's just one of those... Uh, you know, that was a special game uh, that stood out. They, they were they were actually a pretty good, really good team at the time. But um, again, sometimes with some of your successes, you're gonna you're a victim of your own uh, success. So, so the next year we're playing Waterloo, and they have a player, and then they had um, I think Steve Linsman was playing for Waterloo at the time, and uh, they had a few good players on there as well. But they they put a guy on me who just like a dog on a bone. He followed me everywhere on the rank when I didn't have the puck he'd hit me if I didn't have the puck we ended up losing that game like about nine to three and even when it was like I don't know eight to two or eight to three this kid wouldn't let go and I kind of like really like <laughs> don't you have something else to do <laughs> like we're down five or six goals and this kid was just would not let he was like my shadow and the coach gave him an assignment and he was so that was a bit of my uh I don't think they were going to let me get eight points again, ever again, in a, in a single game playing against Waterloo. But uh, sounds like Floyd Crawford gave him that assignment: go shut yeah, down exactly. the top line. It right? was, like, <laughs> yeah. And if you didn't carry out your assignment, you're going to know you're, you're in trouble. So did uh, you? So would your teammates know? <laughs> I know we've kept you for a while, and I'm sure you have better things to do than talking right. to us. But I do want to ask: um, when your number was retired at RMC? There were numerous people that came back. One, of course, Doug Gilmore, but yeah. plenty former teammates, friends, family. Andrew Mott mentioned something about the first time going to Gagetown for summer training. Do you remember the first time going to Gagetown, and what's the story behind that memory? Well, that was like almost going to another planet uh, at the time, Gagetown. I don't think I'd ever been I might have been my actually first time even going to New Brunswick uh, in Gagetown so I would have been in 85 um, and just as going there it, it, it was uh, real really settled in because you know playing hockey one career and going to university and my after my first year of university uh, it took French language training and so my second year and that, that's where kind of a switch got in it got real so at Gagetown is the combat training center and then they, when you come into this, it is instantaneously, it's got a feel of war fighting. Uh, it's a different mindset. And they make sure that we're training the best soldiers in the world. Uh, it, it's posted right up all the time. So you, you're good to get there again. And, and it's a bit of a, a mindset. You go in there, this is for real. 
this is what you're here to do. And, you know, for someone, you had to turn out being academic, you had to turn out being sports, the athleticism. This is now you're from uh, end of April right to, to mid-August. This is what you're going to do in other skill sets. But, but what it does is more than anything in the military, there's the, the sense of that camaraderie and team cohesiveness and chemistry. And if you get that right, I, th I think you're going to succeed in any workplace. Um, but that, but, it, but it, you just know that it's a, you can't ignore it. You can't fake your way through it. You got to be committed to it and dedicated. And the, these are skill sets and new ones you're going to take on for life. And lucky enough for me that, you know, you, you find your places, like you said earlier, places like Bosnia, Kosovo, uh, Afghanistan for two years, uh, four tours. And then over in uh, Kuwait and Iraq and, you know, another Lebanon and, and also uh, in Jordan. So it, it's, it, it's, it's a real mindset uh, to go like that. And so when you go in there, it's just not you can turn a switch on or switch off. That switch is on and it stays on. And it either burns inside you or it doesn't. Uh, and that's where I get into that earlier word. We referred to it a couple of times, a bit of a calling. Um, it, it's, it, it's a commitment. And if you're not committed, dedicated, uh, I don't want to get two cents, but uh, the ultimate seriousness is involved. Uh, I've been in some places in the world and um, lost some very valuable teammates as well under the most dire circumstances. Um, so it, it's that that's the focus that you have to have and, and come away with. And if you don't, you're not committed and do it, then don't go, don't go to Gage Town or find another career path. But that's, it's the mindset you have to have. That's uh, it's really important stuff. Steve, thanks again for the service to our country through our military and uh, for, for spending this time with us. It's, it's a lot of fun listening to the stories and, and having you be a part of this program. So thank you very much. Yeah, and thank you. And thank you to the whole community of Kitchener. Um, like I'll say, those two teams that we played to the 80-81, 81-82, phenomenal team. I don't know if it's the best team ever, that Kitchener's ever produced, but it's got to be right up there in the old up there list. It's a fantastic team. I'm Jeff Woods, and I'm shining a light on music and the rock stars who make it. He just was one of those people. He, he stood out. He was a magic guy. He really was a magic guy. All, we all have force. He had the same amount of force as we all had. This was before Led Zeppelin. Robert was full on. I mean, he was Led Zeppelin without the band behind him. He had the hair, the jeans, the whole thing, you know. And he was amazing. The Records and Rockstars podcast heard around the world and yours to hear wherever you get podcasts. All the episodes from JeffWoodsRadio.com. Another Sound Off Media Company podcast.